The following is a sermon from Redemption Bible Chapel in London, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit redemptionlondon.ca. Well, good morning to each and every one. It's great to be back with you. I invite you to take God's Word now and turn with me to the book of Philippians. I think most of you know uh, my day job is at uh, Heritage College and Seminary. Uh, just a brief update, we certainly do appreciate the support of Redemption Bible Chapel and the support and involvement in particular of Pastor Norm, who serves on the board, of course. Uh, we've had a great semester so far, a great crop of students in the college and in the seminary. Just a few classes, a few weeks of classes left, I suppose, until the final exams for the semester. But we certainly do covet your prayers. As always, as we make decisions regarding personnel, programming, campus, buildings, lots of big decisions coming up. And so we certainly do ask you to continue to join with us in prayer as we seek to train men and women for ministry from coast to coast to coast and even beyond. Have you found Philippians chapter 1? We've covered most of the chapter. We've looked at Paul's greeting, verses 1 and 2. We have looked together at Paul's prayer, verses 3 through 11. Last Sunday, we considered Paul's testimony, verses 12 through 26. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And now today we embark on what is a rather lengthy portion in the epistle. It actually takes us into the fourth chapter, a series of exhortations. And we are going to limit our study to the first exhortation as we find it in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And I invite you to listen closely now as we read God's Word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Look with me again at that final verse, verse 30. Engaged. You, he's writing to the Philippians. You are engaged in what? in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What's he talking about? You are now engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. I think he's referring to their visit among them. During his second missionary journey, he arrives in the city of Philippi, there's no synagogue, but a number of Jewish women gather by the river to pray each day. 
And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke make their way to this gathering. Paul proclaims the gospel. Lydia and his enti her entire household are converted, perhaps others. And daily, Paul makes that journey to the river to instruct these believers to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, and undoubtedly others are converted. And as this goes on, there is this young slave girl, demon-possessed, who follows this apostolic band each day as they travel to the river and back, and she's crying out, these are the messengers of God Most High. And she's causing all sorts of confusion. And one day Paul's had enough and he casts this demon out from this slave girl. But there's where the problem begins. She was a slave. Her owners viewed her as a source of income, some sort of fortune telling, I don't know, something like that. And they are, and this is an understatement, annoyed with the Apostle Paul. They drag him before the magistrates. The, he and Silas are beaten with rods, thrown into prison. You are now engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now here that I still have, because having completed my missionary journeys, I ended up in Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, I was arrested by the Judaizers, the opponents of Christ, the opponents of the gospel. I appeal to Caesar for a fair trial. I've been led under guard to the city of Roman, in Rome, and now I sit in the heart of the Roman Empire awaiting my trial. You are now engaged in this same conflict, opposition, persecution that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Now this is problematic. It's problematic because we are trying to bridge the gap between then and now. And we read this, and we're somewhat familiar with Paul's persecution. We get it that the church in Philippi is now facing and engaged in persecution. But what has that got to do with us in 21st century Canada? What is there in these verses for us? Well, let me ease into this slowly. Let me begin. Let, let's just stay with the Apostle Paul for a moment. And let's remind ourselves that when he wrote this letter, it's somewhere around the year 60, maybe 61. So we're way back in the first century, and he is in prison. He will be released. We know this from reading some of the other epistles. We know this from church tradition that he is released. And he uses the city of Rome as his base of operations to evangelize the Western Empire. Just as he had used the city of Antioch in Syria as the base of operations for his three missionary journeys to evangelize in Syria, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Greece, Macedonia, he uses now, after his release, the city of Rome. And he moves throughout the empire as a missionary. And church tradition, I don't think there's any reason to doubt this, but church tradition tells us that Paul actually made it as far as Spain. Witnessing, preaching, proclaiming, establishing churches. He is re-arrested somewhere in the year 66, perhaps 67. So a few years after his release... He is arrested again, went back in Rome, and this time he is executed during the reign of Nero, the Roman em emperor, as is the apostle Peter. What has changed? 
61, he's released. This guy's not a threat to us. 66, 67, he's executed. This guy is a threat to us. Something has radically changed in the Roman Empire. Christianity had been flying under the radar. The Roman authorities couldn't care less about it. But by the year 66, 67, the Roman authorities are now taking notice of Christianity. Rome is a tolerant society. They have nothing against religion. They embraced and practiced thousands and thousands of different religions. But they had an issue with Christianity. Why? Because Christianity was viewed as being intolerant. The Christians were viewed as being immoral. They were accused of cannibalism. I don't have time to explain that, but it was related to the Lord's Supper. Eating Christ's flesh, drinking Christ's blood, right? They were accused of atheism. And even far eclipsing these accusations, they were simply accused of being bad citizens. And they were bad citizens, why? Because they refused to engage in the public worship and public sacrifice to the state. The state had been deified. And the Roman emperor had been deified. And so people, Roman citizens, those living within the Roman Empire, they were free to practice whatever religion they wanted to. Whatever religion they chose. As long as they participated in the public worship, the exaltation of the empire and the emperor himself. And of course, Christians would not. And from the year 67 to the year 312, when we have the legalization of Christianity within the Roman Empire, from 67 to 312, Christians are the object of sporadic yet intense persecution. You can go back and you can read numerous accounts. They've come down to us through the centuries. I was reading just a couple of weeks ago of a young woman named Blandina, a young woman, a young girl. I'm not even sure she was a teenager. She was a slave, and she was converted somewhere in the year 175, 176 in what is known today as France. Back then, it was Gaul. She was born in France, raised in France, a slave in France. An elder by the name of Pothius was passing through the region preaching the gospel. A number of people were converted from every level of society, boys and girls, men and women. She was among them. Two years later, under Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, there was a terrible persecution in that region. And she was arrested along with countless others. And eventually she was led to the stadium, the gladiatorial games. And she was suspended in a net in the stadium. And after a few days, during those days of what could only be, have been agonizing, her simple life ended when her fragile body was slammed against by a bull enraged by the crowd persecution. Christians from 67 to 312, oh, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. But again, what does that have to do with us in Canada? You know, we might think of our brothers and sisters in China, and if you've been following the news the past few months, you know that all is not well in that part of the world. 
And we may think, well, here's a text extremely relevant for them. And indeed it is. We could think of brothers and sisters in Cuba. We could go to any number of countries, some Islamic states, and we know all is not well. And here is a text for them undoubtedly. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this is indeed a text for us, Canadians living here, enjoying the freedoms that we presently enjoy. We've celebrated them already, and we have enjoyed them for generations now. I want to submit to you that this is a text for us. Why do I say that? I don't want to be an alarmist, all right? But I am going to be a realist. Listen carefully. Today, significant segments of our society view Christians as immoral. Our convictions on marriage, gender, abortion are seen as ignorant, intolerant, and downright hateful. As Christians of centuries ago were required to sacrifice to the emperor or face punishment, we are now beginning to face the same choice. Affirm gay marriage or have your business boycotted. Affirm gender fluidity or you can forget about advancement within the university. Affirm pro-choice, or have your funding cut, your tax exemption status revoked. Embrace the cult of tolerance, and believe you me, it is a cult. The cult of tolerance, or you will be marginalized. We're on the cusp, brothers and sisters. We're on the cusp. I don't know what the future holds, but if the trajectory holds, if the trajectory of the last de decade or two holds, do you have any inkling as to where we will be 20 or 30 years from now? Let's not be alarmists, but neither let us be naive. Let us not be naive. For the first time in the history of this nation, being a good citizen and being a faithful Christian are now viewed by many as being mutually exclusive. What will the future hold? You know, that's pretty big picture, isn't it? But let me, let me even just bring it down. Bring it down right here, Sunday morning, here we are. And when we think of opposition persecution, I mean, let's just get very real. For all I know, sitting here right now, there may be some, and you're shaking your head, this is your reality. This is now your world on the university campus. This is your world in the public school. This is your world in your business, your vocation, your profession, whatever it might be. Let's get even more personal. For some of you, this is your world in the context of the home. The unsafe spouse, the unsaved child, the unsaved parent, opposition and persecution. No, no one is throwing stones at us. No, no one is arresting us and hauling us off to prison. But there is now a prevailing mood 
in Canadian society, and you need to have your head in the sand not to notice it. And it does beg the question, what will the future hold? And this is one of the reasons, the chief reasons I believe this text is of utmost importance for us. It is of utmost importance to that man, that woman, young man, young woman, there you are sitting there right now, and this is your world. You are feeling the opposition, and you're feeling the weight and the burden of it. And for the rest of us who perhaps are not living in that reality yet, friends, we need to prepare today for what's coming tomorrow, for tomorrow will be too late. Prepare today for tomorrow. I pray the trajectory shifts dramatically. I'm not a pessimist. I still look around and I see great cause for celebration and thanksgiving and hope. I'm fully convinced that God is on His throne today as He was yesterday, as He will be tomorrow. I'm still a firm believer that we might yet see revival like days of old and the days of Edwards and Whitfield and others. Why not? That a period of darkness might yet be followed by a period of tremendous light and awakening. Great hope. But at the same time, let us not be naive. When it comes to the spirit of the age, the reality of opposition, and let us heed wholeheartedly Paul's command as he gives it to us there in verse 27 only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He could have said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, but he doesn't. He inserts that word right at the beginning, only. Why? He's drawing our attention to this command. In essence, he is saying, above all else, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the first place, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Of utmost importance, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is His command to the church of Philippi. This is the Spirit of God's command to us today. Let your manner of life, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let it be commensurate with the excellencies of the gospel. Let it be consistent with the glory of Christ as revealed in the gospel. When we think of the gospel, we can really view it from two angles, can't we? Two vantage points. You know, you think we do, we do this all the time with other things. Have you been to Niagara Falls recently? You know, Niagara Falls, nobody's been to Niagara Falls recently, but you've been to Niagara Falls at some point, right? Well, you make your way down to Niagara Falls, it's possible to see the falls from two vantage points, right? You can park your car pay the overpriced fee for parking your car and walk down to, to the edge where they have the railing and you can look out upon Niagara Falls and the water rushing over the escarpment, the mist rising in the sky, the noise thundering in your ears and the spray moistening your face. Or you can see the falls from below. You can get into a boat, the maid of the mist, and get up close to the falls, the churning water, the deafening noise, the blinding cloud, the shrieking tourist to your left, two different vantage points from above and from below, two very different experiences. It's the same when it comes to the gospel. 
we need to view it from two vantage points. We can view it from above, and here we're concerned with the big picture. Here we're celebrating what Paul makes so clear, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, where he tells us that Christ has reconciled all things to himself. There we see the cosmic Christ and the cosmic significance of Christ that by virtue of his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coronation, he has inaugurated a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. We are awaiting its consummation. But believe you me, it has already been established and already all things have been made so subject to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is His cosmic significance. This is the significance of the gospel as we look at it from above. God, Christ has reconciled all things to Himself. But as we read on in Colossians chapter 1, we get a glimpse of the gospel from below. Not only has Christ reconciled all things to Himself, Christ has reconciled me. This is where it becomes very personal, from the universal to the personal. He has reconciled me to himself. Oh, the gospel, the good news, that God saves sinners from himself. That's the good news. Have you ever thought of it like that? What does God save us from? He saves us from himself. He saves us from his wrath, for his glory, by his grace because of Christ who offered himself up for us upon Calvary's cross. My mom taught me a little prayer. I suppose I was three years of age, four years of age. There are a couple of different takes on this prayer, but it goes something like this. As I, as I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake? Very troubling for a little four-year-old to be reciting this prayer. I have issues, but we don't have time to go into that this morning, all right? As I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Should I die before I wake? Take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. That's the gospel. That's it. For Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. His perfect life, His substitutionary death, on my behalf, believing in the Lord Jesus, looking to the Lord Jesus, receiving the Lord Jesus, and for His sake, His sake alone, reconciled to God. This is the gospel. From above, the universal. From below, the personal. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let the way in which you conduct yourself, let the way in which you live, word, thought, and deed, let it point to the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel. What will that look like in the context? It will look like three things. Firstly, it will mean that we will stand together for the gospel. Follow along again as I begin reading in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing 
firm in one spirit, standing together for the gospel. It's actually a military term. And so you probably get the gist of it already. It was the term used to describe a soldier who was told to do what? Stand his ground. Take up his position. And whatever comes your way, whatever the enemy throws at you, you are not to be moved. That is to where you are to stand and you are to stand firm. And Paul is making the point here that to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel is to stand firm. Stand firm in the face of what? Opposition. Stand firm in the midst of the conflict. Stand firm when persecution comes your way. Do not be moved. Do not be moved when it comes to what you believe. And do not be moved when it comes to how you live. None of us likes opposition. None of us should develop a martyr syndrome. None of us wants to be marginalized, ostracized. No one likes to be ridiculed. No one wants to be dismissed today as being ignorant, intolerant, closed-minded, and hateful. We run from that kind of thing. We don't like it. We want to be accepted. We want to be one of the crowd. And the great danger when these things come our way is simply this. It is to compromise. And that is what the church of Philippi is facing. They're a young church. These are young believers. Paul writes this epistle just a couple of years after this church is established. And he knows what's coming their way. He knows what they are facing. Hence the command, stand firm. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And do this by standing firm in the gospel. Christian. As we look at our nation, Canada, these are not the days for equivocation. These are not the days for compromise. Again, we have so much to celebrate. And I don't want to suggest this morning that the glass is half empty when it is half full. It is half full. Lots of things to be celebrating. Lots to be thankful for. And still many, many reasons to be hopeful as we look ahead and anticipate what is coming. But at the same time, friend, please understand the society in which we now live. Canada has abandoned reason and virtue in preference for relativism. This is the day in which we now live. It has discarded completely discarded the higher ideals of truth and justice and goodness in its bewildering pursuit of personal rights and freedoms. It has wandered so far as to revel in the intellectually absurd, namely the denial the basic biological and physiological realities of what it means to be a man and a woman. The foundations have crumbled, my friend. We may not feel the effect for many years and generations yet, but believe you me, we're building on nothing. 
There is now no higher authority in this land than Ottawa, the government. Woe to the nation building on man with its only authority as man. The foundation is gone. And we'll be all right until there is a crisis on a national scale. And we will quickly discover that because the foundation is gone, we are no longer able to stand up and bear the weight of that crisis. It may not happen. It may happen. But please, let's, let's, let's take the blinders off and be very clear where we are as a country, where we are as a society, and understand this, that as Christian men and women, now is not the time for compromise. Now is not the time to fall asleep at the wheel. Now is not the time to take things for granted. Now is the time to stand firm when it comes to what we believe and how we live, and to do so winsomely, yes, lovingly and graciously, certainly, but to do so in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It will mean, secondly, not only standing together for the gospel, but striving together for the gospel. And so again, pick it up right at the start of verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's going to use the same word later in his epistle, chapter 4, and there in English it is translated as labor. And so it is this idea of expending ourselves. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, and just listen closely to this, it is the word sunathleo, sunathleo, from which we get our English word athlete. And so we know an athlete, an athlete, whether it be a hockey player or an Olympian or a tennis player, to, 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 to reach the pinnacle of their sport in their pursuit of excellence, whatever the motivation, whatever it is that drives them. Oh, the countless hours of striving, the countless hours of labor, the discipline and the diligence that they have committed themselves to in the pursuit of their goal as an athlete. We can think of the author. We can think of the artist. We can think of the professional. We can think of the mason or the carpenter who, who acquires such skill in their craft, in their work. It is as the result of effort, the result of striving. This is the idea here. Paul is saying, look, I command you to walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's going to mean you strive. You give yourself. You expend yourself for the sake of the gospel. I don't think we need to think big picture here. I think we can think very small picture here. Everyday life. Just think of your job, your vocation. Here right now, what do we got? Homemakers, volunteers, nurses, policemen, I don't know, teachers, janitors, roofers, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Strive for the gospel in your calling. Meaning what? Live for Christ in your calling. <laughs> Recognize that Christ is your boss. Let him determine why you do what you do in the manner in which you do it. And do it for his glory, striving for the gospel in your very vocation. As a parent, 
Strive for the gospel in the home. Take time with those little ones in the morning before they go off to school to pray with them, to read scripture with them. Take time as you put them to bed at night to teach them some sort of prayer, maybe not the one I gave you earlier, but some other prayer. And read the scriptures and go over the scriptures and, and, and inquire as to their spiritual condition. Strive. It's going to take a little time. It's going to require a little energy. Your home. It's not your castle. It's a wonderful opportunity to practice hospitality. Maybe think about having neighbors in, unsaved neighbors. Think about turning your home into a place where people visit regularly and have a particular end in view, living out the gospel in front of them, striving to make the excellencies of Christ plain. You men, I don't know, we used to call it a beer league on a Friday night, Friday night hockey, Friday night slow pitch in the summer. There you are, you're engaged in the sports on the Friday evening, the rec league, whatever it is. That's great, it's wonderful. Strive for the gospel in those moments. Stand out. Stand out in terms of your language. Stand out in terms of your attitude. Stand out in terms of your encouragement versus your criticism. Make it known what you do on a Sunday morning. Strive for the gospel in these times, in these places. Oh, when it comes to our money and our giving, it's not ours, it's ultimately Christ's. Strive in your giving to contribute to missions, evangelism efforts, Strive when it comes to this local church. Look at all of the outreaches. I mean, I pick up that little bullet in that insert there and read of all these things going on. I know each of us has our own callings, our own responsibilities, our own scheduling. Time is limited. But if time allows, get involved, plugged into one of those things. Give yourself to it. And strive by the gospel in a manner that is worthy of its excellencies. And thirdly, Paul says, not only will we stand together for the gospel, not only will we strive together for the gospel, but we will, and I do not want to hear this, and I'm guessing you don't want to hear this either, we will suffer together for the gospel. Verse 28, and be not frightened in anything by your opponents, whoever they might be, in whatever form or fashion they might come. This is a clear sign to them of your courage, your standing firm, your striving. The reality of the gospel in your life is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And here is a tricky verse. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer. It has been granted to you not only to believe in him, we like that part, but also to suffer for his sake. Three words of encouragement in these verses. If we are to live them out and put them into practice and take them to heart, Three truths we need to come to terms with. The first is this, the suffering in view. It is temporary. He tells us that in verse 28. Be not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, right? So you standing firm, you being courageous, you living your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, you demonstrating the reality of the gospel Christ living in you. This is a sign 
It's a sign to them of their eventual destruction, your eventual salvation, and that from God. Suffering is temporary. A great division is coming. It's at Acts chapter 20. Paul is preaching in Mars Hill, and what does he declare there? What does he make plain? That God has appointed a day on which he will judge the living and the dead. I know it's difficult for us to enter into that. We get, we get very caught up in the here and now. What's going on in the present? The, the urgency of the moment, and rightly so. We live here, oh, but my friend, live with one eye on what is coming. There's a day of reckoning coming. It gives me no pleasure to say that. But it's exactly what Paul says here. There is a day of judgment coming. And how important it is for us to fix our eye on that coming day, recognizing that whatever we face in the present, whatever suffering we experience, whatever opposition comes our way, it is but temporary. Florence Chadwick, I think that was her name, and I think the year was 1952. She decided to try to swim from Catalina Island. I think that's what it's called, just off the coast of California. Catalina Island to the main coast and she plunged into the water on a foggy, misty, cloudy day and off she went. Fifteen hours later, can you imagine how difficult that would be? Fifteen hours later, she began to cry out to her coach and others in the boats accompanying her, uh, I'm done, I'm spent, get me out of here. And her coach encouraged her you're, you're, you're close. You're almost there. Just keep going. Keep persevering. And off she went, just one arm after the other, and then finally she just gave up. And they had no choice but to pluck her from the water into the boat. They made for the shore, and to her horror, she discovered that she was only a couple hundred meters away. The next day at the news conference, she declared, I don't want to make excuses for myself, but I really believe that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, on a bright, sunny, clear day, she plunged back into the water and she swam the distance, no problem. Oh, when opposition comes and persecution comes, it is like a thick cloud descending, isn't it? Can't see our hand in front of our face. It's temporary. Christ is coming. A day of judgment is coming. An eternal separation between the sheep and the goats, believers and unbelievers. And we must fix our eyes on that day. Suffering is temporary. Second truth is this. Suffering is ordinary. That's what we get in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And here we have a wonderful reminder of the sovereignty of God, do we not? That not only are we appointed to salvation, Paul makes it clear here, we are appointed to suffer. Let me read quickly for you a number of texts. No need to turn there. You might want to jot some of these down, but just listen to these. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, do not be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 2.21, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Suffering is ordinary. We don't like to be taken by surprise. At least most of us don't. I can uh, recall an incident many years ago now when I was a young man. I was a roofer. Might surprise you. Through high school, university, when I first married, shingler. I worked on the roofs. And I can remember uh, one particular morning showing up at the, uh, the work site and uh, a couple of us scampering up the ladder onto the roof and just sort of walking around, surveying the job for the day, the shingles that needed to come off, and waiting for the new shingles to be delivered when suddenly I fell through the roof. Imagine my surprise. <laughs> Why? I wasn't expecting it. There was, there was absolutely no clue, no hint of any rot or anything on the roof. Uh, there, was, there, was, there, was, there was no sort of hole or anything, no indication at all that I was walking on a rotten roof. Imagine my surprise when I fell through it. It was a cathedral ceiling, meaning there isn't much of an attic. Imagine the surprise of the homeowner <laughs> as he was sitting there at breakfast, suddenly to see my feet appear through the ceiling. Surprise. We're surprised by things we don't expect. And far too often when it comes to opposition and persecution, we seem to be surprised. We seem to be sh shocked. Well, something must be wrong here. This isn't normal. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. This is perfectly normal. We should actually expect it. As John Piper penned a few years ago, frustration is normal. We need to understand this as Christians. Disappointment is normal. Sickness is normal. Opposition is normal. Conflict, persecution, danger, stress, they are all normal. The mindset that moves away from these things, runs from these things, flees from these things, will ultimately move away from reality and away from Christ. He adds, Golgotha was not a suburb of Jerusalem. Suffering is ordinary. The third truth we need to learn and take to heart is this. Suffering is necessary. And that's the direction Paul points us to as well in verse 19. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is necessary. In his epistle to the Colossians, first chapter, verse 23, verse 23, Paul says something akin to this, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Because I am filling up that which is lacking 
in Christ's affliction. When he speaks of Christ's affliction, he is not referring to what Christ suffered upon the cross. The word in the Greek is never used in reference to what transpired at the cross. When he speaks of Christ's affliction, he's referring to the life Christ lived. And the opposition and the persecution, the affliction and the tribulation he experienced from the cradle to the cross. And Paul is now saying, look, I am now filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What does he mean by that? I think we get the answer in our epistle, Philippians. Just turn over for a moment to the second chapter and look at what he says in verse 29. He's celebrating Epaphroditus whom the Philippian church has sent to Rome to minister to Paul in his hour of need. He is going to send Epaphroditus back to them. And so he says in verse 29, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking? They couldn't be there. They loved him. They took a collection for him. They wanted to minister to him. They wanted to participate with him in his suffering. Physically, they couldn't. So what did they do? They sent one of their own, Epaphroditus. And it's Epaphroditus who makes that long, difficult journey. It's Epaphroditus who risks all to the point of death to go to minister to the Apostle Paul. And Paul recognizes Epaphroditus as an extension of the church. He's completing. He is filling up what was lacking in your love. And so when he then says, look, I rejoice in my suffering because I know in my suffering I am filling up, completing what is lacking in the suffering of Christ, he is simply saying this. Look, we as Christians are the extension. As the body of Christ, we are the extension of Christ. And Christ's suffering love for believers is made evident in our suffering love for others. That it is as we engage in this fallen world, and as we do encounter difficulty, and we do live with tension, and we do experience opposition, but we persevere in it, and we love others in it, we become the walking, living, visible, tangible manifestation of the love of Christ for the lost. Oh, suffering is not haphazard. Suffering is not pointless. Suffering is necessary. God intends for the suffering love of Christ for sinners to be seen in the suffering love of His people for sinners. J. Oswald Sanders, he used to tell the story of an evangelist in indigenous evangelist missionary in India who would travel from village to village preaching the gospel, shoeless, poor, poverty-stricken, owned nothing, but had uh, taken this calling upon himself to reach these villages with the gospel and to walk from village to village to village. On this particular day, he arrives at one particular village, gathers a few people around, and begins to proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus. They shut him down right there on the spot and drive him out of the village. We have absolutely no interest in hearing you or anything you have to say. Out he goes, out of the village, finds a tree, lies down, and falls asleep. When he awakens, he's shocked, he's startled because the entire village was gathered around him. 
And the village leader spoke to him, said, look, we came out to sort of check you out and look you over as you slept, and we noticed your feet and the calluses and the blisters and the sores and the blood, and we are now sorry that we have rejected you. And we now want to hear from a man who was willing to suffer so much to bring his message to us. Christ's suffering love for sinners made manifest in a believer's suffering love for sinners. And in so doing, that simple evangelist filled up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Oh, suffering is necessary. I have no idea. Our time is gone. I have, I have no idea who's here this morning and what you're going through. I have no idea what you are facing in the home, on the job site, in, on the university campus, in the office, in the business. But uh, if you're feeling it and the opposition is beginning to get you down, this is God's command for you only. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand together. Strive together. Suffer together. Why? Because Christ is worthy. Our Heavenly Father, may we see just how worthy our Lord and Savior is this day as we behold him suffering upon Calvary's cross, giving his life as a ransom for us. May we be stirred, our faith, our hope, and our love as we see the ascended, resurrected Christ, now seated in glory at your right hand, governing and reigning over all things, the affairs of men included. We pray that we might be encouraged as we remember your calling upon us, your calling whereby we are commanded to live in a manner worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel, by your spirit, by your grace, and through your word. We pray that you would hear and answer our prayer this day for grace, enabling us to put into practice all that you have shown us and made clear in Scripture. And it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, we pray. Amen.